So uh, before I get into the verses for today, I'm going to begin with a background to this letter. So you have the full context of today's message. Second Timothy is a letter from the Apostle Paul to obviously Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. At the time of Paul writing this letter, we find him once more in a Roman prison. When he wrote his first letter to Timothy, he was also imprisoned and apparently released. This time he was rearrested because it was a time of great persecution by the Roman Emperor Nero, and it is believed that not long after Paul wrote 2 Timothy as well as Titus, he was martyred by beheading. The overall purpose of 2 Timothy seems to be to encourage Timothy to be faithful in the face of hardship. The verses we will go over today in chapter 3 are written as a warning. As we go through it, we'll see if this warning pertains to all Christians even today. In the first two chapters, Paul reminds Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind, which is a good thing to remember when we get to chapter 3. He tells Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel, to be strong in the grace in Jesus Christ, which is a very foundational belief, faithfully and patiently teach God's word in humility, remind believers to stay away from unprofitable disputes or profane and idle babblings as they only tend to divide people, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So included in the list, as you can see, there are some run-froms, as in flee from youthful lusts, and run-tos, as in pursue righteousness, etc., etc. Also, although we are not pastors, we are Christ's disciples. We, as Christ's disciples, need to follow the same pattern, including the teaching part, Because although most of us may not have the gift of preaching or teaching, me being one, in Colossians it does say to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Note, for God's word to dwell in you, you have to let it in by studying it. So Paul, inspired by God, as we'll see in verse 16, goes from giving Timothy, as well as us, our marching orders. In chapters 1 and 2, this is what you need to do, to a warning that comes in chapter 3. After all, to fully prepare someone for a mission, you you want to spell out your expectations as well as warn them what they are up against. 
Not only does Paul warn Timothy in words, but in his life example, as he is actually suffering in prison for the sake of the gospel. So chapters 1 and 2, what to do? It rhymes. Chapter 3, verse 1, starts with a but. And it's an important one. But know this or mark this, it ain't going to be easy. It states there will be perilous times. Some interpretations say difficult times. Others, terrible times in the last days. Whichever word you use, it sounds unpleasant, even dangerous. The actual word used in the Greek text is kalipas, which was also used in Matthew to describe the two demon-possessed men's violent or savage, unrestrained nature. They were exceedingly fierce, and they were so violent that no one could pass that way. If you remember, this is a story where Jesus exercises the demons who go into the pigs, who go into the water and drown themselves. It also warns that these terrible, savage times will be in the last days. Is Paul speaking only about days in his near future or Timothy's near future? Last in the Greek text is eschateus, where we get eschatology or the study of the final days. It can also mean till the end, which seems more fitting here. Why? Well, for one, No one knows exactly when those very last days will be, including Paul. So he couldn't have had a specific time period in mind. Second, when we get into the characteristics of those days, we find that they were already a sign of the times then and still in our days a thousand plus years later. According to most Bible scholars, The last days refers to these days, which began since the first coming of our Lord Jesus as a sacrificial lamb, and end at his second coming when he comes to judge the living and the dead. Now, although we have always had sinful, savage times, the Bible does tell us the savagery will increase. Look at verse 13. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Or how about in Matthew uh, 24, verse 12, which speaks of the last days having an increase of wickedness, causing the love of most to grow cold. How many of you have ever heard your parents or grandparents Or maybe you have said these words. Things are so much worse today than when I was growing up. The Bible seems to say it's true. The days are getting more evil. And not just that more bad things are reported in the news nowadays. This seems to make the warning for Timothy also for believers today.
as we move on and hear a description of what those terrible, savage times will look like, see if they may explain why there seems to be so much evil in the world nowadays. Are you ready? Here we go. The first characteristic of perilous Kalipas times is people will be lovers of themselves. What? What? Well, wait a minute. Hold on. The Bible is saying that people loving themselves is a sign of terrible, perilous, savage times? That doesn't seem so bad. Aren't we supposed to love ourselves? That's what psychologists tell us. I looked up loving yourself on the internet, and this is just some of my findings. So here's some articles. I'll read the titles. Here's one. Do you have to love yourself before someone else can? By Erica Slaughter, Ph.D. The link between high self-esteem and relationship success. Here's another. Four proven ways to show yourself more love. It goes on to say, write yourself a letter. Really. (laughs) By Emma Sapala, Ph.D. Here's another. How to love yourself first. The least honored and most powerful path to self-love by Ken Page, who is a licensed social worker. Still another, when you love yourself first, life will take care of the rest. That's by Tony Frackery, self-empowerment author. And still another, who to fall in love with first, six ways to love yourself, by Vishnu. And Vishnu is a writer and coach who helps people overcome breakups to rebuild their lives and live with purpose. And by the way, Vishnu is a very important deity in Hinduism. And here's one. In case you were in love with yourself, but then fell out of love with yourself, this article is for you. How to Fall in Love with Yourself Again, written by Mandy Ferrara, who's a writer passionate about health. Those articles were uh, found in psychology journals, by the way. If you're into reading paperback books, here's one for you. Love thyself, the first commandment. That doesn't sound familiar like the first commandment, but the first commandment to raising your self-esteem, boosting your self-confidence, and increasing your happiness by Madison Taylor. She she says, loving yourself is the first commandment of a happier life that you should live by. Loving yourself will help you in any situation and protect you from the pain that often accompanies life. You can become your own best friend and provide yourself with the love and encouragement needed to succeed at life. You can balm, B-A-L-M, your own wounds and ease your pain and suffering. Here's one for Christians if you have a Kindle. I don't know if they have a a regular version, but 
This is a Kindle edition. Love Thyself by the Reverend Bernice R. Hicks, who also directs a worldwide ministry, the Christ Gospel Churches International Incorporated, whose headquarters are located in Jeffersonville, Indiana, USA, and their affiliated churches are located in 27 states and 66 foreign countries. And by the way, she got five out of five stars uh, by the 10 customer reviews that are listed. So listen closely to the description of the contents. Loving the Lord and ourselves according to God's purposive will generates unity and harmony with those around us. This booklet shows how loving ourselves begets power to forgive ourselves and others. If we love ourselves, God's forgiveness works to save us from the consequences of our wrongdoings. His forgiveness to us empowers us to forgive others as God has forgiven us. As a result, our vengeful thoughts and our malicious attitudes disappear, and we can become emotionally and spiritually healthy. One more. This is for the ladies out there. Because it's it's Mother's Day, this one is especially for you. Radical, it's titled Radical Self-Love, a Self-Love Course for Women. A 14-lesson program where you'll be guided through the most profound and transformational self-love exercises so you can realize your divine perfection and finally start loving the F-bomb out of yourself. And if you subscribe now, It'll only cost you $297, a real bargain. That's it for titles. Even if you are a Christian who tends to be very suspicious when the secular, unbelieving world tries to sell you something or some concept, you may still think, but isn't loving yourself biblical? Aren't we commanded to love ourselves? After all... In nine different verses, from Matthew 19 to James' second chapter, God commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. So isn't it inferred or implied that God commands us to love ourselves? Well, the following answer I'm going to read, uh, which I happen to agree with, I got it from Got Questions website, which I highly recommend. And by the way, our own body, Bonnie Gaeta, who's not here, I guess, works for them. So here's the, here's the answer to that question. Are we commanded to love ourselves? And the answer is no. A resounding no. The statement, love your neighbor as yourself, is not a command to love yourself. It is natural and normal to love yourself. It is our default position. There is no lack of self-love in our world. The command to love your neighbor as yourself is essentially telling us to treat other people as well as we treat ourselves. Scripture never commands us to love ourselves. 
it assumes we already do. In fact, people in their unregenerate condition love themselves too much. That is our problem. Think about it. Why would God need to command us to do something we do naturally? That's why one of his commands is to love your enemies. That's unnatural, to love your enemies. Now, what does loving yourself too much mean? Loving yourself means loving yourself first. Why is that wrong? Well, because we all know that Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. Can I get an amen? All right. God is always first on the who to love list. And how do you love God? Well, Jesus said by obeying his commands. Secondly, in the love chapter, it describes, which is Corinthians chapter 13, it describes love as not self-seeking. I repeat, not self-seeking. Finally, if you subscribe to the idea that you can't love others unless you love yourself, I would remind you of another commandment that Jesus gave us. It was a new command. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That verse is a command to love others, not as you love yourself, but as you have already been loved by Jesus. For those who are married, there's a verse that says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Our love is a response to what we have already received from God. Neither of these verses mention loving yourself first, then love others. It is not an accident that the first characteristic mentioned is people will be lovers of themselves. As self-love increases, the love of God and others decreases. And we move towards what's called narcissism, which is defined in Wikipedia as excessive interest in or admiration of oneself and one's physical appearance. Listen to these synonyms um, in this dictionary. Vanity, self-love, Self-admiration, self-adulation, self-absorption, self-obsession, conceit, self-conceit, self-centeredness, self-regard, egotism, egoism, egocentricity, and egomania. There's a lot of there's a lot of selves in there. The rest of the characteristics that follow go hand-in-hand with narcissism or excessive love of oneself. And by the way, a narcissist, a true narcissist, can't really love others as they love themselves because they think of others as in competition for the number one loved spot, and that would be themselves. 
Here's an example that came to mind regarding loving yourself leading to sin. Uh, When a married someone commits adultery, it is not because they love another more than their spouse, although that may be what they tell themselves. It is because they love themselves more than their spouse, and their own happiness with the other person is more important than their caring what happens to their spouse. Next in line, they will be lovers of money. For a narcissist, money is power, control, and status. With money comes possessions, and the more I have, the more elevated I am compared to others. I deserve it. They may not even care how they obtain it, even if by illegal means. You don't have to be a Christian to have heard about what the love of money is, right? Being the root of all evil. We also know there's a verse that says uh, you are not able to serve both God and money at the same time. The next two uh, characteristics, boasters and proud, are explained by the idea that because narcissists believe they are superior to everyone else, They would obviously be boasters, prideful, and arrogant or conceited. Their favorite topic to talk about is, you guessed it, themselves. They require constant praise, even if it has to come from themselves, and love to be the center of attention. There have been some horrific, I'm sorry, there have been some men who have admitted to horrific, evil crimes just to get the attention and notoriety by confessing them to the public. They would never listen to advice or counsel. Why should they listen to someone inferior to them? They have all the answers. What does God say about the proud? Pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before a fall. And another verse says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I'm going to put blasphemers in verse 2 with slanderers or revilers in verse 3. Both are in regards to speaking evil of others. Remember when the Pharisees claimed Jesus was of the devil, and that's where he got his power to do miracles. Narcissists speak evil of others to build themselves up. When many were still flocking to Jesus, John the Baptist said how Jesus must become greater and he must become less. Well, a self-centered person would claim the opposite. You must become less so I look greater. Think of how many have claimed to be a good person because at least they're not like Hitler or George. Because you know George. He's always doing bad things. So at least I'm not like him. How about disobedient to parents? We all know what God commands about honoring your father and mother and not just on Mother's Day or Father's Day. 
Narcissists have trouble being obedient to anyone inferior to themselves, including parents. Obedience to someone else usually gets in the way of their happiness. Some of us may have heard words from our children or other children when they all feel grown up. You can't tell me what to do. I know what's best. The verse goes on to say they will be ungrateful or unthankful and unholy or wicked. Think about it. What would a self-centered person have to be thankful for if they look at their life as self-made and deserved? I did all this. I deserve all of this. I earned all of this. There's a strong sense of entitlement, or it's my right. And by the way, you don't have to believe that these are characteristics of narcissism. Just look them up for yourself. This is the uh, opposite of grace, which is a gift. Unholy or wicked or evil, you would have to be blind in both eyes to look at the many recent terrible events and not see evil at work. It cannot, I repeat, it cannot all be explained as due to mental illness. It is an illness of the heart. Did you know, studies show that only 3 to 5% of violent acts can be attributed to individuals living with a serious mental illness. In fact, people with severe mental illnesses are over 10 times more likely to be victims of violent crime than the general population. Unloving, so egotists, even when they seem to be loving, typically they are just acting to gain what they want. They tend to show their true colors once they got you. They use their partners as a trophy that they won to display to the world, look at me, I have her or him. Unforgiving, why are we Christians forgiving of others? Because as it says in the Bible, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Again, we're responding not to the other person, but to what we have, what God has given to us. A narcissist would not have anything to be forgiven for, because usually they deny sin as sin. Think about mass murderers who think of themselves as doing what's best for the world, like ethnic cleansers, Hitler and Stalin. Verse 3 says they will be without self-control, brutal or untamed, and rash or headstrong or reckless. People who love themselves much tend to be impulsive and practice no restraint. They lack empathy, so don't care who may get hurt along the way. A me-first-above-all-others attitude makes me also, as verse 4 says, 
treacherous or traitorous if anyone gets in the way of my desires or happiness. Not lovers of the good, meaning what God says is good. They do love what's good, but good for them only. Which explains at the end of verse 4 why they would be lovers of pleasure, what feels good, fleshly or carnal vices, rather than lovers of God. God gets, even God gets in the way of my happiness when I uh, lust after uh, different vices. As we have already spoken, God has to be number one and won't share his rightful spot with anyone or anything, rightfully so. They have a form of godliness but deny its power. Who does that remind us of? In the Bible, uh, perhaps it reminds us of the Pharisees and false teachers, even of today, who are all shiny and holier than thou on the outside, but dead on the inside. They were described as whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Jesus had a lot of negative things to say about them. And here, Paul tells us to have nothing to do with them. Nothing to do with them. Verses 6 and 7 are interesting. They speak of these lovers of pleasure and godly actors making their way into gullible or vulnerable women's lives. Well, first of all, regarding these corrupted false teachers or actors, um, and they use as an example in verses 8 and 9, Janus and Jambres. So rumor has it that those two, this, is, this was not in scripture, but rumor has it that they were the magicians <clears throat> who tried to mimic Moses when his staff became a serpent. And if you never read that in your Bible, the movie, The Ten Commandments, will show you in living color what that looked like. So if you look up characteristics of narcissists, they tend to be described as very charismatic and manipulative. Vulnerable women, charismatic, manipulative men or teachers, perhaps many find their confidence to be attractive, okay? Did you know Ted Bundy, who admitted to raping and killing at least, at least 36 young women, was a narcissist? Again, if you don't believe me, look it up. Now, I'm not implying that charismatic people are all rapists and killers, what I am saying that is that when you put a charismatic false teacher who's telling people the way to happiness, right, together with a gullible, vulnerable woman described as heavily burdened with the guilt of their sin, somebody comes along and makes me a promise to unload that burden, weak with the desires of the flesh, and without knowledge of the truth of God, likely 
she will become captivated by the false teacher and captive of the false teachings. Verse 9 starts with another, but, uh, and he's speaking here again of those two, of Jonas and Drambres, um, that just like they were shown to produce false miracles, so too the false uh, teachers will be shown to be liars. And if you remember in the Bible, the, the serpent that came from Moses' staff actually devoured the two false serpents that the magicians came up with. In verse 10 through 13, we have another but where Timothy, as well as those who heard of or read of God's doctrine, Paul preached, and his life, including the many afflictions and persecutions he suffered, know that God delivered or rescued Paul from them. We know, though, that this this. Uh, this time in prison, he would not be rescued by God. Paul then goes on to say, everyone who desires to live a godly life like Jesus will suffer persecution. Not some, but everyone, who, which includes all believers, even today. Verse 13 Another but comes regarding evil imposters or false teachers, that they will grow worse in their deceptions. In fact, they'll even deceive themselves. You've heard the old phrase, if you keep repeating a lie enough times, you'll even convince yourself that it's true. Okay, time out for a recap. The first two chapters of 2 Timothy, Paul is instructing Timothy in what he should be doing as a worker approved by God. Chapter 3, Paul warns about what it will be like in trying to live a godly life and how believers will be persecuted and that opposition will intensify until Jesus returns. In the final three verses of this chapter, 14 through 17, Paul has a final, but Paul says, even in the face of the savage times ahead, you must remain faithful to the truth of God, which he is assured of. And that Timothy has known the true scriptures from childhood regarding salvation, which is, I'm going to quote Ephesians here, chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul goes on to say that those holy scriptures, though written by men, are true because they were divinely inspired by God, or some interpretation state, God breathed. If you remember in Genesis, 
The first time God breathed, he gave life to the dust of the earth and created man. Not only is the word of God inspired by him, but it is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in godly behavior or righteousness, which equips all God's people to meet God's ministry of doing good works for him. I'm going to conclude today's message with the words from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 13. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men and women of courage, be strong, do everything in love. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the warning of the days to come and the days we're in already. Lord, help us to stand before the onslaught of the world, Lord. Help us to stand firm in your truth, Lord. Help us to help each other, Lord, get through these trying times. And we thank you that you promise never to leave us, never to leave us alone. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.